started. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, God, for bringing us together as a church. Thank you, Lord, that we get to worship together. And uh, we're just thankful that mercy is always available to us. Uh, We're thankful that you've revealed your character, especially in the Old Testament, and how you graciously work with people, how you do have divine standards of right and wrong. Uh, Father, we pray, Lord, that you bless our understanding of the text today, that the Spirit would add it to uh, our hearts and our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <laughs> so, well, we are in Deuteronomy 24, and we're starting the part with marriage. And, and I know they would say, well, wait, I thought we dealt with the marriage part back in 23. We did. This is under a different heading this time. Before, when we were dealing with the idea, um, let me see here, it was the idea of purity. In this section, what we're dealing with is the idea of uh, stealing, uh, false acts, those types of things. We dealt with the idea of uh, untrue, uh, we're going to deal with untrue scales, things like that. So, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, real quick, we don't know what this was. We know that if it was adultery or that she was involved in an in a explicit relationship before they came together, uh, the, the penalty is stoning. But this isn't a stoning situation. This is just a certificate of divorce separation situation. Now, if you remember when we looked at Matthew 19, the reason it's given at that time, Jesus said, is because of the hardness of heart, because there wasn't forgiveness that was in the relationship. And so this was issued and the lady was cut loose. Again, what, what the Hebrew seems to point to by the idea of indecency is she's been devalued in some way um, because she's obviously been flirtatious, possibly physically in a way that was unbecoming of a woman, something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's real like maybe she was revealing in her dress, maybe she was purposely, I don't know, advertising, I'm not for sure what was going on. But it says here, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out of the house. And so uh, this idea of writing a certificate is basically the idea of cutting off, but it's not cutting off in the way uh, that's mainly understood in Old Testament because usually cutting off is death. This is the idea of now into a uh, economic um, turmoil because of whatever she's done. Now she's on her own type of situation. Verse two, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce so that's two and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and if the latter husband dies or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife so either situation then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled now that's interesting in other words, because of the one flesh... Yes, Tanya. Give me Pastor Jeremy. Sure. Um, where, where are you at? We're in chapter 24, 24. And we're in the middle of verse 4. Are you talking about Deuteronomy? Yes, yes. Deuteronomy 24, verse 4. Okay. So because the first relationship had been severed with the certificate of divorce, and another person has taken on her as a wife, but yet there's some dissatisfaction there, and so... There's another certificate of divorce that's given. The first husband cannot come back into the situation. Why? Because she is most recently one flesh of the second marriage covenant, 
not the first one. It would be ridiculous for you to try to have a superior covenant in the midst of an inferior covenant and then go back to the inferior as a means of, I don't know, catching what remains. Uh, it, it makes no sense in order to do it that way. Now, you can understand that because of anxiety or fear or something like that that was going on uh, for her and for her livelihood, for her future, that might seem like an option to entertain. Uh, however, um, that shouldn't be the only reason for an option like that. And I think what's awesome about this is that notice that God highly values marriage. It is to be taken seriously. It's not to be taken flippantly. And if this was a woman who had a rebellious streak, uh, she was visiting the port every time sailors came in. I don't know what the situation was going on there. Uh, but, but whatever this indecency was that ran, obviously is a pattern in her life to cost her two marriages, uh, there, there's a lot of accountability that needs to take place in that situation. So God calls it to task. So verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. The covenant has already been broken. You can't reestablish it. For that is an abomination. The word means horrible. Before Yahweh and you shall not bring sin. That's important. On the what? Notice it's not people. Notice it's not on yourself. It's very interesting how God in the Old Testament talks about this plot of land. Because he almost talks about it as a living, breathing personage who could be offended in some instances. In fact, we find out, does anybody remember why it is that Israel is coming in and, and having to commit harem, what we talked about harem uh, weeks and weeks and weeks, months ago, uh, against the people of Canaan? Does anybody remember why? Because they defiled the land. They defiled the land. Their child sacrifices... Uh, their their foreign sexual unions, everything that they were involved in, all these fertility poles that they had erected in the land, all these altars of false gods had come up, and they had so spoiled the land to where God was bringing a people who were not warriors in in order to warrior through them to cleanse the land so that the land could have rest. I mean, God treats this plot of land in the Middle East, this real estate, like a person who needs to be cared for and taken care of. He's very serious about it. Yes, ma'am. I find it interesting throughout all of Deuteronomy, it's probably seven times a chapter, it's repeated to the land which the Lord your God is giving you to an inheritance. Yes. Over and over and over again, constant reminders of, the, of that fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the reason why. I mean, why, why is that? Does Israel deserve it? No, but it was promised to them. So it's all based on the faithfulness of God's word, not on the deservedness or undeservedness of the people. In fact, we find that when Israel is unfaithful in the land, what happens? Gone. In fact, this is what Judges is all about. They get into a cycle of idolatry, and then they get taken captive by another nation. Gentiles are now lording over them. And then you find that they cry out to God, and they repent. God sends in a judge in order to wipe them out, and that's not a, you're guilty judge. He comes in and does some sort of slaying your masterful, I don't know, destiny work or something like that and sets the people free and brings them back into the land and finally they redevote themselves to the Lord. So yeah, this whole thing has to do with the land will not tolerate this sinfulness that goes on in it for too long. God will cleanse it. It's almost like when, you, when you've read through the Bible and you see some things almost like a cup of iniquity that's been filled, God will only let the cup go for so far and then it's time to pour the cup out and, 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 and cleanse it, deal with it, get it done. 
So yeah, you're exactly right with that. And also, real quick, bringing that up brings something else to mind. This is also why the church is not Israel. Notice that all of Israel's promises are earthly. I'm going to give to you a land. You're going to be a blessing. How? In an earthly way. It's going to have eternal ramifications, but it comes through the birth of the Messiah. Those who bless you, I will bless them. When does that take place? Between Israel and the nation. So it's all an earthly set up uh, pattern of blessing and privilege that happens here. The church, our inheritance is where? In heaven. Exactly. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2.6. All of the church's blessings are heavenly. All of Israel's blessings are earthly. It's important that we rightly divide that. So, it says here, you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you as an inheritance. Verse 5, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now remember, this is the whole idea in the category of you shall not steal. Why? Why is it that when somebody gets married, they've got a year off? establish their household it's the idea of establishing the house in fact how long did couples wait to have kids at that time within the year they didn't wait you know it's on like donkey kong is pretty much how it was you know signed sealed and delivered well it's the idea of getting everything established and notice what it says there give happiness to his wife i mean think about it one year with nothing else necessarily you have to worry about except focusing in on your marriage that's it. We almost killed each other the first year. Did you? <laughs> well, also, we'd get everything up and running. Everything up and running? You know, well, I mean, even, like, as far as, like, farming or the whatever they're doing to earn an income or to farm the land, it's like, you're not just going to abandon her to figure it out. <laughs> Think back to when you got married. Okay? It's so long. And when did you really, when did you really begin to know your spouse? I mean, let's be honest, kind of in the dating phase, when you first came in contact, you knew what they wanted you to know, and they were making sure that you didn't know what they didn't want you to know, right? And then as you start to move forward, okay, you're the anomaly, but as it started to move forward in things, and you start to live with somebody, you start to eat with somebody, you start to deal with the whole sickness and health, you start to go on vacations, you start to experience hardships, whatever it is, you start to really learn a lot about the idiosyncrasies of people, and the mannerisms of people, and you really start to see a side of a person you've committed your life to that you didn't get until after that had to take place, issues had to come about, uh, you know, encouragements had to come about. Whatever it says, I mean, I don't want to just focus on negative things, but going through those situations together causes us to really see sides of our spouse that maybe we didn't know before. This is why in God's eyes, marriage is a commitment before it's ever love or, you know, you just don't understand how in love we are. Gosh, I just want to slap young people when I hear that stuff <laughs> so much, man. It's like, cool, you're in love, but that is not the most important thing. You are committing yourself and it's, it's totally God oriented. So, um, it's interesting to think about what it would look like to have a year uh, where, where, where it's just a constant around one another and learning what it is to grow as one flesh. So, verse 6. No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. What is that? Taking away their uh, ability to earn income. Exactly. 
So the idea is, is you need a pledge. Somebody owes you something. You've loaned money. And you need some sort of collateral to make sure that they're good for paying it. So what you would have at that time is you would have this big round stone that would be laying and be flat on top. And there would be a ridge, a divot, that would go all the way around the inside of it. And it would have a, have a stick or whatever it is for a pivot in the middle. And this would be considered your bottom stone. In fact, what they call it, uh, well, it just says a hand mill is what it is. But the upper millstone was the most valuable part of this. And the reason is, is because as it was fastened to this and it would pivot against uh, that stick in the middle or the stone in the middle, whatever is going to be holding it, and it would sit in that divot, you would pour your grain in that divot and you would begin to move that stone so it would roll across and it would crush all of this grain to get it ready so that you could use it to prepare food. Well, if you took somebody's upper millstone as a pledge here, I'll hold on to this until you can pay me back. What are you going to crush your grain with? You've got the trough for it, but you don't have anything that's actually going to be doing the action to get it ready. So, in other words, somebody owes you something. Don't steal somebody's livelihood just because they owe you something. In business dealings with somebody, be gracious, be giving, be forthright with them in this. Verse 7, if a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen, any of his fellow Jews, his countrymen are the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Kidnapping is evil. Plainly put. Now here's the question. What did Joseph's brothers deserve? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Pretty serious. We have biblical examples to, to pull off of this. This is not something that's odd to be treated violently or to be sold into slavery. That is deserving of death. What did they steal? Not just a person, but what? Their future. Their future. What kind of future do they have when you weren't a slave and all of a sudden you find yourself a slave of no doing of your own? It's because somebody else wanted to make money. It's a different situation if you become a slave voluntarily because you needed money. How are you going to pay it back? Well, I'm going to become indentured to this person. I'm going to pay off my debt because I benefited from the loan that was given to me. But to think the idea that you were kidnapped and sold so that somebody else benefited from that and you have no future outside of that slave line, that's insane. Don't steal that person's future out of this. Purge that evil from your midst. Notice that they're not called a kidnapper. They're called a thief. Then that thief shall die so that completes the you shall not steal section any questions thoughts anything okay next we deal with from chapter 24 verse 8 to 25 verse 4 we are dealing with the whole idea of common dignity and respect or the idea of not bearing false witness command number nine is what we're dealing with verse eight be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests teach you as I have commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. And this is interesting because there's a three tier structure here that works. It goes from Moses to the Levitical priests to the people. Moses is God's mouthpiece and representative unto the people. Uh, cases of, of leprosy were to be handled by a priest, not necessarily a physician or a doctor or the elders of the city or anything like that. Priests were commissioned to handle that. Now, if you want to write in as a side note in order to help with this later, you go back and you look at it. Leviticus chapter 13 verses 1 through 14 are all the protocol for what it is to look at leprosy that the priests were commanded to do. And they're very specific. You could actually continue reading to the end of chapter 13, but 1 through 14 gives you the basic gist of what's going on. Verse 9, remember 
that when Yahweh your Elohim, sorry, remember what Yahweh your Elohim did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. So he gives them his example of history in order to reflect back upon the leprosy situation. Anybody remember why he struck her with leprosy? She was getting uppity. She was getting uppity? I don't know if that's a theological way to phrase it, but sure. What was she doing? Does anybody remember? She and uh, Aaron were um, getting upset because uh, they thought uh, they thought that uh, Moses was making much of himself. Okay. And that they should be on an equal playing, uh, playing field as him. Why does Moses get all this exposure to the Lord? What makes him so special? I mean, he's our brother. We saved him ultimately. I mean, who was the little girl that watched the basket? And went and fetched somebody so that they could nurse the child, which happened to be Moses' mom. It was Miriam. You know? I mean, think about how uppity she could get about herself. How she could think much about herself in the situation. And what God does is God turns around and strikes her with leprosy. Why? Because she spoke against God's choice. And notice it wasn't what's so special about Moses. Moses would have been the first to tell you there's nothing special about me. In fact, if you read Moses three or Moses, Exodus three and four you find out that he's constantly giving God reasons why he shouldn't be used by God for what's going on. He gives him five reasons. Well, I don't talk very good, right? Well, who made your mouth? I'll do this. You know, it's nothing in Moses. It had everything to do with speaking against God's choice of Moses, and that's where the sin took place. So he struck her with leprosy in that. Verse 10, when you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. And think about that. You loan somebody money. You want some sort of satisfaction. I need some collateral. And so you burst open their door and you grab their TV and pick it up and just cart it on out of there. Here, this will take care of it. That's what rent center does, right? <laughs> so when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house and take his pledge. You shall remain outside. And the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before Yahweh your Elohim. Now, this is very interesting, because when we talk about not bearing false witness, it's talking about treating people with respect, regardless of their, if they're poor. It doesn't matter. If it's a situation where they're of lower economic status, it doesn't give you the right to burst into their dwelling and start taking things in order to compensate yourself for what you've loaned them. And what's interesting here is we find out the pledge is their cloak. What they use to cover themselves in order to sleep is the idea. Notice you stay outside the house. You wait for them to come to you. And oh yeah, when it's nighttime, make sure that you do your due diligence and care for them by getting that back to them so that they can sleep in comfort. And look what it says after that. And bless you. Why? Because no one needs to be a jerk. That's what it's getting across here. There's no reason to disrespect anybody. No one is worth disrespecting here. Notice, and it will be righteousness for you before Yahweh your Elohim. Why? Because that's who you're ultimately answerable to. This really isn't about how you look to the person you loaned money to. This is about how you're representing yourself in relation to your relationship to God. That's the difference. So he says here, verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Uh, let's see here. Whether he is one of your countrymen, a fellow Jew, or one of your aliens, so pro either somebody who proselytized into Judaism or somebody who is uh, a Gentile, 
He says, who is in your lands, in your towns, you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. Now, in other words, pay him. Give him the paycheck he deserves. Just because he's from out of town or just because he wasn't naturally born of Israel doesn't mean that you slight him in any way. Just because he's a hired hand doesn't mean that he's a lesser person and therefore you can wait and pay him whenever you want to. Look what it says there. For he is a for he is poor and sets his heart on it. What does that mean? In fact, if you look at the word heart there, it's the word soul, literally. Sets his life on it. You know what that means? It means he's living paycheck to paycheck. And it means that that's a situation that you will sometimes encounter with people. And you know what? That's okay. Don't everybody get all Dave Ramsey advice on people when they're living paycheck to paycheck. I appreciate Dave Ramsey's advice as much as, as anything else. But when we talk about robbing the dignity of people and making them feel inferior because of a situation they find in life, who in the world put us in that position? Nobody did. That's a good principle that transfers to us. So, for he is poor and he sets his heart on it. He needs that paycheck to make it through the week. So that he will not cry against you to the Lord, to Yahweh, and it becomes sin in you. That's interesting. That it becomes sin in you because you've withheld your paycheck. You're not caring for the people who are working for you. Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, when the innocent die with the guilty, it is a false representation of somebody's reputation and character. You know, if, if a father was to step in, oh, no, no, don't kill my son for what he did. Take me instead kind of idea. We have a lot of scapegoating with that that goes on in parenting sometimes. Child's done something that is serious. Maybe the police have gotten involved. You know, I'll never forget. Oh, my gosh. Uh, why this is coming to mind. Thank you, God. Um, we decided one day we were so bored during during summer break. Uh, we were over at a friend's house, and there was a camper, a nice camper that was across the street. Uh, at an elderly gentleman's house and we decided it would be a great idea to raid my, my friend's refrigerator and see how much food we could throw all over this camper and so we egged this camper and buttered this camper and yeah it was awesome um, I was in so much trouble for that it was unbelievable but just not having a common decency or respect for other people's stuff and and um, it would have been wrong for my dad to step in and go, well, you know, he's, what was I? I was in eighth grade. Uh, yeah, by that time, I should have definitely had my jaws jacked. But, uh, I mean, it would have been totally wrong for my dad to step in this situation and go, you know what? Well, I'll just I'll just take this. But, no, my dad made me go over there and wash that camper from top to bottom and, and, and deal with it and, and didn't let me slide on it. And, and you know what? I have nothing for respect for that now when I look back upon it. But if he would have stepped in and just tried to alleviate every consequence I would have had, good grief. What a terrible situation. Well, I know it's not as extreme as death, but it's the same type of thing. What will your child ever learn and what kind of person is producing in society and respectable in society will they become if you're constantly cleaning up their messes for them? You don't do that. You, you stand accountable for your own sin. Uh, again, bearing false witness, it's a false representation. Verse 17, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien, a foreigner. Uh, it could be somebody that's fully included uh, as a covenant member of Israel now, a proselyte, we would say. 
Uh, if they were circumcised and had been upholding the law, they would have been fully accepted into that situation. But you're not to pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. No collateral is required for a woman who doesn't have a breadwinner in the home. Uh, you, in, in other, in, and here's the interesting thing. In order to take a pledge means that there was a loan that was given, and the pledge would be the collateral for that loan. In other words, if she needs a loan, you just give her the money and be happy is what it means. Don't take anything from her. You don't need anything in, re in return. Just be gracious and give. There's a lot of times... Um, there's a lot of times that we become so concerned with the end result and what the balance is going to be, and we find that we're so apt to dot I's and cross T's that we forget that there's a God who supplies for all of our needs in those situations. Um, I don't know about you, but the government's handing out money right and left <laughs> in situations. We've uh, we've been about as stimulated as any society could possibly be stimulated from the stimulus. Um, and, and I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your money or anything like that. But I'll tell you this. There are people who are genuinely needy. There are people who are genuinely serving God and doing some worthy things. Um, and, and it's not like we serve a God who's left us hanging in high and dry on his end. Never. It never happens that way. So maybe something to consider when we, when we think about how we deal with those things. The orphan, someone who doesn't have a family to watch over them. The widow, someone who doesn't have a breadwinner in the house. An alien, someone who's a foreigner and not accepted. Which is very interesting because this was not how the Jews viewed Gentiles in the first century in Jesus' time. They were incredibly biased. They were incredibly racist. They were incredibly bigoted uh, in, in that. And, and notice that the law, the law of God, speaks against having an attitude of that, perverting justice. Well, they're just a Gentile. There's no reason why their charge should be taken seriously, why there should be you know, reparations made to them, why they should ever bring that to court, get rid of all that stuff. Verse 18, but you shall remember, and it's interesting, the point of reference, here's where it takes him back to, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that Yahweh your Elohim redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. Now, here's what that does. And this is the same idea of whenever we look at forgiveness, forgiveness issues that we have with people, is forgiveness is never based on the deservingness of the person. It's never based on whether they've earned back your good graces, whether they've got a current track record that shows faithfulness. It's always based on the fact of how much we've been forgiven. It's the same in this situation. Why is it that you should treat treat socially disadvantaged disadvantaged people with a degree of respect and, and, and a common uh, decency that goes on? You should do it because that's the way that God treated you. That's the way that God delivered you. Now we're not Israel; we weren't part of the Exodus situation, or, or people weren't uh, enslaved there and that type of thing. But we can all draw from the same fact of I didn't deserve salvation, and yet Jesus still took a cross for me. Uh, you know, every one of my sins has already been paid for before the eyes of the Father, who's the ultimate judge, the ultimate opinion that matters. What in the world am I holding on to junk for? That makes no sense. God always wants to bring it back to his perspective in demonstrating grace for people. And that be the reason why we roll over grace to people. A, a very good perspective for us to take. How much time we got? We can do this. We can do this. Uh, he says here... Um, Verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field, so it's harvest time, September, October, whatever you're going through and you're, you're pulling it all in. It says here, and have forgotten a sheaf in the field. Oh no, 
Now this kills the type A people because the type A people, type A people are like, I've got to get it all and I've got to get it done right. And it's all got to balance out. What's God saying? God, God's saying it's good to be type A, but calm down. Because there's a greater thing beyond your thoroughness that can be accomplished through what God does here. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Now, some people, that would just cause them to bust a jugular and tap out, okay? But notice, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that Yahweh your Elohim may bless you in all the work of your hands. You know what that's saying? You don't have to go back and get it because you're never going to come up short with it. And the reason why you overlooked it and you left it behind was for the sake of others to take personal responsibility and under full blessing of the law, come in and provide for themselves from it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's interesting that it doesn't say that you may be a blessing to them. That's already taken for granted it's going to happen. It's the idea of the fact that you don't have to be type A about the situation because in the midst of it, God is already on the other side blessing you in it. So what are you going to lack? Nothing. Not a thing. Notice it's all an attitude and it's all an eternal perspective. This is the reason why, why I kind of joke sometimes and say a lot of these methods would never work with the government. Why? Because the government doesn't want reliance on God as part of their ultimate economic plan or the part of their, their ultimate judicial plan or any of those things like that. The idea is, is we've got to keep every, everything in place and we're going to be the ones who benefit off of everything that we pass and move forward. That's not the way that God works here. God is, I'm actively involved and constantly in the mix of it, taking care of you. He is a God who takes care of his children. It's the same right here. So he moves on here. Verse 20, when you beat your olive tree, because it was a bad olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien and the orphan and for the widow. Why? For the exact same things. In other words, grace that is exhibited ends up being grace that is imparted. God blesses in the midst of the situation. That gives you the freedom to be gracious on the other side of it. Let it pour over. Pay it forward, however you want to say it like that. But it comes from God to begin with. Verse 21, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien and the orphan and for the widow. You know what else is interesting about repeating that, giving you three different situations? It's the idea of the fact that the alien and the orphan and the widow are going to be thoroughly provided for in those three areas as well. Regardless of where they get the food from, they're not going to come up short. God is not going to be like, you know what, leave that behind so they can come along and get it. But ultimately, I'm going to let them die in the long run. That's not what he's talking about here. Sufficient for you, and I'll provide for your needs. Sufficient for them, and notice there's an element of personal responsibility. It's not free handouts here. Not at all. They come along behind you to to get the olives, to get the grapes, to get the grain, whatever it is. They come along, they do their work, and they're able to provide for themselves. You may have planted it, but there's going to be plenty that's there to take advantage of. So don't ever, this whole free ride thing is just not biblical. Verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Goes back to the same idea. Remember when you were helpless, you had nothing and God fully provided for you. Chapter 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge, the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, as they should, right? If what the person did was good, They get commended for that. If it was bad, the wicked get condemned. And that's justice being served out. So there's nothing wrong with verse 1. Verse 2 is what messes everybody up. 
Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. So that's what he's getting. He's getting a flogging. It says here, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. Now that doesn't sound like a good time. But there's obviously a payment or a punishment for wrong that's been done. Why have the guy lay down and be beaten in front of the judge? Because there's accountability in play and there's still dignity in the criminal's life. The criminal's still worth something. The criminal still has some value because they're a created person. You make sure that the people who are administering the punishment weren't somehow paid off by the family, somehow had a cousin's, you know, brother who was involved in that family or something like that. And so we're going to make sure that we really beat the snot out of this guy. It has nothing to do with that at all. It's, it's in order to ensure to pad against those types of things taking place in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. In other words, different infractions have different numbers of lashes that are given out or different flogging beatings that are given. Now, it also puts a stop on that. Verse 3, he may beat him 40 times, but no more. 40 is the max punishment for anything else. In fact, the only thing beyond that flogging was what? Death. death. That's it. If it was going to go to 41, it was something that was meritable of death. Now, notice that they're operating in their own judging system based off the principles that God has given them in the law, but they are to administer the judgment in the same way, or the, sorry, the penalty in the same way that God has told them as well. So it's constantly a reverence for him. No more than 40, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. Isn't that interesting? He still has a reputation. He's not to be so put out or so discouraged by the situation. He did wrong. There's a judgment that takes place. There's a punishment that takes place, and it's over. God operates like that all the time. You'll often read, especially in the prophets, Israel, you did this. That was bad. That's why you're in this current situation outside of the land, and you're enslaved to these people. But there will be a day. When you turn to me and you call upon me and I will deliver you. We see that stuff all the time that goes on there. Well, what's he saying? You served out your punishment for the wrong that you did and now all is forgotten and forgiven. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm so thankful that the cross establishes a situation where God's not bringing it up again. If it's ever brought up again, it's because it's Satan doing the one that's bringing it up. And then he brings up this really strange one at the very end. Chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You say, why, why do we bring livestock into this all of a sudden? What in the world does this have to do with bearing false witness? Well, it's the idea of an ox was considered the lowest of animals in the situation. It's a work animal. It's, it's constantly out there uh, getting dirty and, and whatever else. All it's good for is for this. You know, you never hear of anybody sitting down. We're going to have a nice hot plate of ox tonight that somebody's made. You never find that. They're just work animals, and they're they're on a lower lower realm. Well, if they're eating and you don't stop them from their eating situation, how much more should you take care of the lowest of the society you live in as people? Now, PETA hates this verse because that completely lets them know that people are more valuable than animals. Uh, but the idea is for the lowest in in your in your group. You should also be overwhelmingly taking care of them so that they get their due and they're taken care of. So that completes the bearing false witness section. Notice it's all about interpersonal relationships, how you treat people, how you represent them properly. Regardless if they're a criminal, regardless if they're a widow, regardless if they're an or orphan, foreigner, 
an ox, it doesn't matter. You still represent them well. Chapter 25, verse 5. This is respect for others. And a lot of this has to do with plugged into the you shall not covet, command number 10. Okay? When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now we know this from Genesis 38. This is the whole Judah Tamar situation that went down. And notice this, that it was already a concept being practiced then before it was ever put into the law for people to abide by in, in Israel. It's important for us to understand that. Verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name, the, sorry, the name of his dead brother, reason, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. There'll be a lineage or a continuance. This is what is known as a Leverite law. L-E-V-E-R-I-T-E. A Leverite law. And what's odd about that is that's not something that was given in Hebrew. That's actually a Latin name that was given to it because Leverite or Lever is the, excuse me, Latin name for brother-in-law is what it means. It's a brother-in-law right that goes on. So the first one dies. The, the woman's brother-in-law is supposed to stand into that position and marry her. Uh, fun stuff. Interesting if we operated that way today. Uh, so, uh, Glad my husband Exactly. There you go. Verse 7. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife. Now, is there freedom in this situation? There is. But there's consequences that come with it. So no, this was something that was not required. But culturally, it was very much expected. Okay? If he decides not to take the wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders. Uh-oh. So now we got local leadership involved in the gates where everybody hung out. Okay? It was the coffee shop of that time. It says here, and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Now, why would that be sad for her? Well, number one, she's not going to have any offspring. That was a really big deal with everyone. In fact, if you remember in, in uh, the whole dealing with uh, Elizabeth and John the Baptist, if you remember that she, when she got pregnant with John the Baptist, you know, it was, she was being shamed by women. We see that from the text. She was being shamed. No, the Lord has looked favorably upon me and given me a child kind of thing. She will no longer be a reproach amongst the ladies there. Well, it's the same thing here going on. But what else is, is, is uh, interesting to think about is what's she going to do economically now? What was the whole situation with Naomi and Ruth? She was a widow and she didn't have anybody to Wasn't that the problem? And if you remember in Ruth's situation, whenever they were migrating and they, they started to have a conversation, they found out that there was a brother that was to, to be her kinsman redeemer uh, in, in her situation. And he opted not to do it. And this is where Boaz stepped into the situation. Now, who came from Boaz? Do we know? Ultimately Jesus. Ultimately Jesus. That's the safe answer. Yes. But Boaz and Ruth had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. So that's why that worked out really, really well. Boaz was able to step into that place because the next brother in line for Ruth opted out of the situation. Good stuff. Why did why did it happen that way? Well, according to the law. Now I don't know if Ruth took this situation in her own hands and did this before the elders of the of the city, but we'll see what happens. 
So my bro my husband my my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brothers in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. There's the accusation, okay? Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her. Now, honestly, after what she just said about me, I don't desire to take her either. Good grief. What's wrong with her publicly disgracing me in that way? But it's actually the other way around. She was being publicly disgraced because he was not fulfilling the duty as a brother as he should. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse, verse 9. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders. Now notice, this is public. And pull his sandal off his foot. Uh-oh. What's going on there? People are losing sandals. And says here, and spit in his face. Now there's a public disgrace that is taking place, and the and the leaders of the of the city are are watching it go on, and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house in Israel. His name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now we might not fully understand that, but here's what's amazing: women had rights. It wasn't just where men lorded over the whole thing and treated them like they were common property that was to be <laughs> traded on the stock market or something like that or pawned off. They had rights. And she was able to come in. She was able to publicly recognize contempt when it had taken place. And she was allowed by law to publicly disgrace him in front of everybody, even going so far as to spit in his face and suffer no retribution because of it. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. So let's... Let's finish this up right here. Um, you know what? Let's stop there. <laughs> let's let's stop right there. Uh, we're out of time. We'll get into what happens when you accidentally see somebody's genitals next week. <laughs> Seems like a good place to pick up, but that's that's what happens next. I tell you, man, Deuteronomy, no stone unturned. We're hitting it all. So let's pray. Uh, God, I'm so thankful that the scriptures tell us that all life is precious. All life is to be treated with dignity. I pray, Lord, that when we think about social situations we find ourselves in and, and deep down we don't ever want to be the people uh, who discredit or, or demean others but sometimes our flesh takes over and wants to give reasons why we should be treated better or why somebody should go without uh, father help us to see them as your eyes see them that regardless of where they find themselves in life uh, in their in their life uh, that father they they should be respected on some level and lord there's a lot of light that can be shined into a situation uh, where maybe other people have discredited someone, but we treat them with dignity and value. Uh, it's a good principle to add to ourselves. All, all life is precious because you created it. And I pray that we represent you well. It's in Jesus' name, amen.